Good evening. It's certainly good to see each of you here this evening, gathered again for another opportunity to worship our God, and I'm appreciative that you made the choice uh, to be here and made the choice to worship God once again. How many of you know who this particular individual is? I'm sure many of us know who this particular person is. LeBron James, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time, arguably the second greatest basketball player of all time. Michael Jordan is number one. Uh, but in 2010, the Eastern, Eastern Conference final, semifinals against the Boston Celtics played horribly, played absolutely terribly. And it actually ended up being uh, the last six games of his career in Cleveland with the Cavaliers before he made his decision to move to Miami to begin playing with them. But he played so terribly in the last couple of games of this series and many people speculated that he just simply quit, that he gave up on the team, he didn't perform well because he didn't really care. He knew he was going somewhere else, and so he just didn't perform in a way that he should have, and people say that he just simply quit. Another individual, Jorge Posada, one of the greatest catchers of all of MLB. Uh, five World Series rings, five All-Star uh, appearances, 17 seasons, all played at the Bronx with New York. Uh, but in May of 2011, which ended up being the last season that he ever played, he actually pulled himself from playing in a particular game because his manager had moved his batting uh, position all the way down to ninth, to the very last person who was going to bat. And so quitting the game, he would finish out the season and then retire. And a lot of people believe that one of uh, the decisions that helped push him into this direction was this particular game. Uh, where he got moved from his original batting position. What about this person, Vince Young, uh, Tennessee Titans quarterback? He quit when his coach, Jeff Fisher, pulled him from a game. In fact, he was so mad that he ripped his jersey off. He took his shoulder pads off. He threw them into the stands, and he stormed off, uh, off the field. And he quit that day, not only on his team, on his, uh, on his coach, on his fans, but also on himself. You know, it's funny. When we talk about the idea of quitting or being a quitter, uh, it's, we always talk about it with bad or negative connotations with it, don't we? Because we, we say things like, when you start something, don't quit, but do what? See it through. Try to finish it. Try to get all the way through, and rightfully so. When a child embarks upon a journey or upon doing something, if it gets hard, a lot of times, what do they do? They want to quit, don't they? They want to give up. They don't want to have to see it through because it's hard, because there's difficulties that they are facing, and we always try to tell them to push on, to keep going, to endure, to persevere, and to finish it out and to see it all the way through. We're trying to instill within them the ability to endure difficult things, to endure all of the negatives that they might encounter within this particular situation and to see all of the hard things through. This evening, what I want to do for just a couple of moments of your time is I want to play off of this idea of being a quitter. And what I want to do is I want to look at it, in fact, in some sense of a positive light, of being a quitter in a positive light. And I don't want to talk about quitting things like alcohol or or pornography, or gambling, or any of those things, because we all know about those things. We've all studied those things. We've all talked about those things. We all know we're not supposed to do those things, and we're supposed to strive to live our lives in a complete opposite fashion of those. But what I want to talk about this evening in three different areas are things that oftentimes we allow our own minds to enter into, a state in which we push or we allow our minds to get into, perhaps without even realizing that we've gotten into these positions and into these places in our minds, and how detrimental 
they can be for us. And I want to talk a little bit about how to get out of those things. Here's the first thing that you and I need to make sure that we quit doing. Number one is this. You and I need to make sure that we quit living in the past. We need to make sure that we quit living in the past. You know, one of the most beautiful things about the Lord's church is not necessarily who is the head of it. Now, certainly that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? We know that it is Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. But one of the most beautiful things about the Lord's church is not even necessarily whose blood it was bought by. That, again, being Jesus Christ. Just read that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. It's not necessarily the fact that it was in God's eternal plan, that this is what God wanted to happen and how it was accomplished through, again, his son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But one of the most beautiful things about the Lord's church, one of the things that stands out to me above all of these things is what the church is made up of. That being the materials, the people that make up the Lord's church that he calls his own. Uh, you know, as you and I are, are readily anticipating the, the completion of the work outside our church building here, we, it's almost become like something that we've just grown accustomed to. We've seen it so many times, people don't even think twice when they walk past it. But as we're nearing the completion of this, at least I hope we're nearing the completion of it, uh, as we get materials in over the course of the next few weeks to try to get this finished up, to, to rebuild these columns and to get everything looking the way that it should be. I know for a matter of a fact that when those materials come in, we want them to come in how? In a perfect condition, don't we? Cletus, if they were brought in in a damaged condition, what would you do? Send it back, right? You don't want that. You don't want something that is nicked or dinged or dented or something that is in an imperfect state. And if there were any kind of imperfections, we wouldn't want it. We'd send it back and we would have nothing to do with it. But then I think about the Lord's church and what makes it up, how it is made up of imperfections perfect materials, how it is made up of imperfect people. God, in his perfect planning and in his perfect design, chose to use faulty and blemished materials to make up his perfectly designed church. And brothers and sisters, that includes us, doesn't it? That includes you and I as individuals who are far from perfect, who are far from where we need to be, and yet we are individuals, at least we should be, individuals who are striving to do all that we can for the cause of Christ. When we consider ourselves as imperfect individuals, what does it denote? It denotes that you and I each have a past, doesn't it? That we have a past of sin and blemishes and imperfections, and for every single person, for every single Christian, we all have a past. Consider a passage in Philippians chapter 3 with me for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is penning this letter to Christians. And if you recall the context of this particular passage, the Apostle Paul has been reminding the brethren of his particular background. You remember reading there in verses 3 all the way through verse 6, he talks about his noble and his rich heritage in the Jewish culture and in, in this religious background there, how he was a well-respected Pharisee. People, people knew who he was. They respected his authority authority and Paul loved it. Paul, that, that's exactly what Paul was wanting in that particular point in his life. But he continues on and you get to verse seven and he talks about how it was all loss for Jesus Christ, how he was no longer dependent upon those things, the Jewish culture, or the Jewish religion for his salvation in the point that he was writing this. He was leaving it all in the past and it wasn't defining who he was at the particular time of this writing. And on the heels of all of that, he begins writing in verse 12, a passage you know so well. Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on 
that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So keeping in mind what Paul's talking about, how he's talking about his past life and how he left it all to live for Jesus Christ, and he's quick to say, look, I haven't attained my goal. I haven't gotten to the point where I am supposed to be where I need to be. He says, I'm not perfect. In fact, he continues on in verse 13, and he says, I haven't apprehended. I'm not where I need to be as an individual. But what does he say? He says, in the whole process, I've forgotten where I've come from. I've forgotten my past. He'd forgotten his past successes, his achievements as a Jew. Verse 3 all the way through verse 6. The sacrifices that he had to make in order to be a Christian. Verse 7 and verse 8. Think about all the things that the Apostle Paul had done. Think about his baptisms, his conversions, the, the churches that he had helped establish. Think about all of these things that Paul had had a hand in in the first century church, and yet he put it all behind him. He put it all behind him, but he also forgot his past failures. Verse 6, he talks about his persecution of the Lord's church. Verse 12, his inability to always be doing that which was right, talking about how he's not perfect, how he hasn't exactly gotten to where he wished that he was. Think about all of the things that he had done and that he had not done in his past life and in his present life, and yet with all of those things, what was he doing? He wasn't wasting his time dwelling on them. He wasn't wasting his time dwelling on the past. He was trusting in Almighty God. And he wasn't allowing his past to dominate his thoughts. He didn't allow the past to distract him from the present. But notice as he continues on, who is able to do this? Who is the one who is able to be able to have this particular frame of mind? Who is able to quit living in their past? Verse 15, therefore, because of all this that we've just talked about, let us as many as are what? as our mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. That word mature in verse 15, the Greek word teleos, the idea of one who is complete in their mental and in their moral character. I think about passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. Passages like Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. These, the, the, these people who are able to have the same mind of Paul, a mind that says, I understand that I have a past. I understand that there are past failures and there are past successes in my past life, but I'm not going to dwell on any of those things. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the mind that we need to strive to have, but it is also a mind that only those who are mature will be successful in obtaining. Paul always used this idea of maturity, coupling it with the idea, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, of growth. So Paul, what are you saying? Paul says, look, what I'm saying is this, if you want to have this kind of mind, someone who is able to quit living in their past, then you have to be doing someone who is doing all that they can to better themselves and to grow as a Christian. See, there's more benefit, isn't there, than just book knowledge when we talk about the, the, the idea of growth. There's more than just a, a more benefit than just being able to know scriptures and cite scriptures and know where they are when we talk about Christian growth. One is able to have the right mind, and it is a mind that sets one up for spiritual success. I think there's two important takeaways, and we've briefly mentioned them already, but th two things I think we need, that are important to look at when you think about what Paul's writing about. Number one, the idea of quit living in the past and dwelling on your failures. Look, I understand that everybody has them. Everybody has messed up, haven't they? Everybody has done things that they should never have done. Everybody has put themselves in situations that they wish they had never put themselves in. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has transgressed the law of God. 
And certainly it's a big deal. And I'm not taking away from the consequences of our sins and the detrimental nature of sin itself. But my point is this. You are not alone. You're not alone. You're not singled out. You're not different because you have a past. Abraham lied to Pharaoh about Sarah on two different occasions. Moses deliberately disobeyed the command, the direct command of Almighty God. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon married foreign women and ran after their pagan gods. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what you have done. It only matters what you are doing. The only moment that you can control is right now. The only time that you can capitalize on is the moment in which you find yourself. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 16. Joey talked about this just a few weeks ago. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Brothers and sisters, this is the only moment that you know that you have. Don't spend it dwelling on the past. Don't spend it focusing on the bad things that you've done or the bad things that people have done to you or even the good things that maybe you have accomplished. Don't allow your past to dictate your present and your future. But then the second thing I think is important to understand is this. Quit living in the past and relying on your successes. We talked about this before at other points in time, but I think it's important for us as individuals and as a congregation to not allow ourselves to just simply sit in the good old, good old days or the glory days that we might call them, especially as a congregation, because it doesn't matter what we've done in the past, does it? It doesn't matter how many baptisms we've had here. It doesn't matter how big our congregation once used to be. It doesn't matter how many restorations you might have had at one point in time. What matters is what is happening right now and how we are planning for the future. Brethren, there are far too many congregations in our brotherhood who are dying out and who are not even realizing it because they have seen what they used to do. They've known what their reputation used to be some 50 years ago, and that is what they're hanging on to. And because of that, there's no growth, and they're dying out. Roanoke, be thankful for your eldership. Be thankful for their diligence in looking to the future and planning for the future and doing just the opposite of this because they're try trying to see how they can grow and better this body here. The second thing that you and I need to quit is this. Number two, quit living up to other people's expectations of yourself. Quit living up to other people's expectations of yourself. As I thought about this, this is really interesting for me as an, as an individual to consider. You know, every sermon, uh, every preacher that's worth his salt before he preaches a sermon has always preached it once already, that being to himself before he gets up and, and, and preaches it. And I say that because of this. As I thought about this, this really hit me a lot more than I thought it would. And I don't say this for any kind of pity or sympathy or anything like that. I, I grew up as a PK. And if you're part of the Lord's Church, you know that that's a preacher's kid. Um, and growing up as a preacher's kid, and if you are an elder's kid or a deacon's kid or anything like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And again, I don't say this for pity or for sympathy or anything like that. And I think I came out on the other side better because of it. But I say all that to say this. Oftentimes, the children of preachers or elders or deacons, they can oftentimes be looked at with well, people might say higher expectations. They, are, they can oftentimes be looked at at higher expectations than what would normally be placed on other people. And again, I don't say it for pity or anything like that. There's certainly benefits and downsides to it. But I say that because I, I as an individual, oftentimes struggled with that growing up. Because I felt a lot of times, aside from what God was already expecting of me and of me of what to do and how he wanted to live my life, that along with that, there were also expectations placed upon me by other people 
that were seemingly almost impossible for me as an individual to meet, expectations that maybe not even God himself had placed upon us as Christians. Brothers and sisters, it can be so detrimental when you and I as individuals look to other people and their view, their expectations that they might have for our lives and allow that to be the standard up to which you and I feel as if we must live. Because as you and I know, people are faulty, aren't they? People make mistakes. People have sin in their lives. And thus, because of that, their standards can also be just that. Not only that, but also think about the ones who hold those unfair expectations. It's very pharisaical, is it not? To look at other people in that way. Jesus condemned that. Just read through Matthew chapter 23. Here's the thing. Our only standard, regardless of who you are, the only expectations that you and I should concern ourselves with are that which God has laid out for us in his holy word. Now, if those expectations line up with what God has, has stated, then sure, as a byproduct, you live up to other people's expectations. But first and foremost, it must be what God has said and what God has laid out for us. Anything else or anything less is going beyond or below what God has instructed for us. I think about a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Paul said, for Do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I am not a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Obviously, obviously, in the context of holding true and fast to the one and only gospel, Paul was baffled, astonished, even amazed at these people who he had just talked to, how they are going after a different gospel, which he says is not another. He's battle, batting, battling the Judaizers and that they were accusing him of tailoring the gospel, making it say something that it wasn't just for himself. And what does Paul say? He says, look, I'm not, I'm not here to please men. I'm not here to make you guys happy. He says, I am here to please only God. I don't do the things that I do for men, but I only do them for God. Psalm 146, beginning in verse 3, Do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and, the, and that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help and whose help is in the Lord his God. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, The fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I think about Colossians chapter three, you know, Joey and I don't only almost always dress alike when we come to worship, but we also use some of the same passages too. Colossians chapter three, you referenced this this morning, verse 23 and verse 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We live our lives, brothers and sisters, for our savior and for him alone. He's the authority. He is the standard. We've talked about that multiple times in our Bible classes over the last few Wednesday nights. He alone is the judge, John, Jesus, or John chapter 12 and verse 48. Thus, the way that we live our lives is by his word and by no one else's. And I think it's important to, to mention this before we move on. I think it's important for you and I as individuals to understand that we cannot allow our own happiness to be dependent upon other people and the people who are around us. And I think this is extremely important to understand. Far too often, we allow our state of being happy or of being content to be based upon what other people might be thinking of us or what might be going on around us, or by the way they act or by what they say, or may, maybe even by how they don't, what the things that they don't say or the way that they don't treat us. Look, People are going to let you down, aren't they? That's just the nature of it because people make mistakes. People do things they shouldn't do, but that's the whole point. Our happiness, our feeling of being fulfilled in this life is never, can never, it must never be based upon people. 
because people come and go. People change the way that they think. People change the things in which they believe, but not so with Almighty God. That's why our happiness, our contentment, must only be placed upon God and the reward that he has promised us. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. John 14, verse 2 through verse 4. Does that not make you happy? A promise made by the promise keeper himself that he's going to prepare a place for us, not just any place, but a place of perfection, a place filled with the beauty and the magnificence of Almighty God in that one day, He's going to come back for his faithful children. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Is that not a description of a place that makes you happy? A place where you and I one day can go and be reunited with loved ones who've gone on before. A place where, where we can forever be able to worship our God in heaven above. Does that not make you happy? You see, we as a pap, we in fact are a people who are called to be happy. Psalm 37 and verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 144 and verse 15, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is their Lord. Lord. Psalm 118 and verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We have so much for which to be happy because of what God has already done for us. As a people who are laden with the sin-sick past, we have an opportunity to come back from that. We have an opportunity to have a chance at salvation, an opportunity to escape this evil-ridden world. Brothers and sisters, our happiness must be placed in Almighty God and not be allowed, limited to be dependent upon the people around us. Here's number three, the last one for this evening. Quit forgetting how valuable you are. Quit forgetting how valuable you are. D you know, when we talk about the, the idea of depression, uh, something certainly I'm not versed in. I don't know it well enough to adequately talk about it, but I want to mention it this way. I understand how big of a problem, maybe I don't understand how big of a problem depression is in our world today. In fact, According to certain statistics, they say it affects approximately 17.3 million American adults in any given year. Almost 2 million children suffer from depression. Uh, 7 million of those, 7 million of the people who do, uh, who are affected by it are 65 years and older. They say women are almost twice as likely to suffer from depression uh, than men are. I say all of that to say this. Our country, I understand, I know, is not in great shape. For, for a lot of reasons, a plethora of reasons. But depression, I certainly think, is one of those things that people battle with. Depression leads people to an inability to focus on their day-to-day -day tasks. It leads them to social isolation, to health problems, perhaps even substance abuse. Maybe in some extreme cases, it even leads to things like suicide. Why do I say all of that? I say that because I can't help but think that some of these problems stem from a mind that has completely forgotten how valuable they really are. A mind that has seemingly forgotten the uniqueness of themselves as an individual that God created. They've forgotten passages like Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13, where the psalmist said, for you, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. When you forget who it is that created you, 
and the purpose that you have laid out for your life before you, you quickly begin to forget how valuable you even are in the first place. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 31, therefore do not fear for you are of more value than many sparrows. I know it's so hard for us as created individuals to fully fathom our God and who he is. We've talked before about the greatness, the magnificence of the nature of God and trying to grasp that, trying to understand that is just so complex and so difficult. Isaiah 40 and verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never, neither faints nor is weary and his understanding is unsearchable. God is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. The one who is so high and so holy. The one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And here we are before God as the created, the inferior, the finite, the small and minute in comparison. And yet what has God done for you and I? What has God done for every single person in in this entire world? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and verse 9, he's provided for us the gift of salvation, that being through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Because of that, you and I can be so confident. We can be so bold in our victory as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57. Quit forgetting how valuable you are, how precious your soul is, how purposeful you are and can be in this life. Kind of like how we began with a reminder of the Lord's church, how how beautiful it is in design because of what makes up the Lord's church, how he decided to make and to make it up with imperfect people. That alone shows you and I how valuable, how worthy we are, but also the fact that we can even have an opportunity to be a part of that church. The fact that Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Godhead, came to this earth, gave his life so that we can have life through him. We are such a blessed people, are we not? We don't have to worry about our past. We don't have to live up to the expectations of others. We only have to worry about what God has set in place for us, that being his standard, the word of God. And within all of that, when we study it, we are able to understand just how valuable you and I truly are when it comes to Almighty God and the way that he views us. We're valuable because God has allowed us an opportunity to get away from our sin, to get away from this world that is so evil, so wicked, so terrible, and to know that we have a home waiting for us if we so willingly submit ourselves to his will. Maybe you're here this evening, and perhaps you're someone who has not given your life over to Jesus Christ. Know that you can do that this evening. We certainly would love to assist you in that. If you've heard the word of God, you believe it, you repent, confess, put Christ on in baptism, that water, a representation of Jesus' blood shed on the cross of Calvary for you, washing away your sins. Know that when you do that and you've given your life over to Jesus Christ, you can go out these doors this evening rejoicing. Read about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and understand how beautiful of a process that is. And if that's the case for you, then you want to respond to the Lord's invitation, know that we can help you with that. Maybe you're here perhaps this evening as a Christian, or maybe your life's not right. Maybe you've sinned in some way. Perhaps it's just between you and God. Take care of it between you and him. But maybe it's done and other people know about it and you do to respond in a public form or fashion. Know that you can do that as well. We'll do all that we can to pray for you, to forgive you. God will forgive you. We'll do all that we can to encourage you. If you have a need this evening, won't you come? It's together we stand and as we sing.
Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.